0: And welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for our group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Good morning. Morning to you too. And we are joined with two new guests to the podcast Harold Hahn, Chief Science Officer of Virtosa. Hello, everybody. Hello, Harold. And we're also joined by Austin Stevenson, the Chief Innovation Officer of Virtosa. Hey, everybody. All right. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular literature section, we'll be discussing news about a Silera raise for $2.5 million to focus on DMT, clinical pipeline. We'll also be discussing an article about cannabis companies and if they have more options to grow than ever from MJ Biz Daily, And we'll also end that, that segment talking about the Imperial College London's um, new studies they're trying to do on psilocybin in veterans. For our rapid fire science, we'll be discussing innovative and emerging applications of cannabis in food and beverages, as well as an evaluation of DMT and other alkaloids in ayahuasca tea samples. And as usual, we'll end with a game And our game for this episode will be name that drug. All right. We'll be right back in about 30 seconds. now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. Recent news has uh, raised our attention about a $2.5 million raise for SILERA to focus on the development of DMT drugs. Now, um, in the psychedelic space, it's kind of rare to see DMT drugs being developed. Uh, Most folks are looking at LSD, LSD analogs, psilocybin, and psilocybin analogs. And, um, you know, I wonder what they're going to do with their DMT molecules. So, Nigam, you know, we've talked about DMT a fair amount on the show. What do you think of this news about SILERA trying to develop, um, sort of focusing their clinical pipeline on DMT, a compound produced by over 50 plant species?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think it's great for a few reasons. So, um, Jackie and Chris, the founders of Silera, are friends of the show. Uh, they've been on before. Um, Jackie and I published uh, a paper together earlier this year. So, um, just really great to to have been, you know, kind of watching their journey evolve, uh, and you know. Every, everything requires funding right so um they've got excellent partnerships with uh, university research labs uh, not only are they working on the uh dmt transdermal patch which has several novelties to it in the field that's already getting a little bit crowded um they're doing something niche and and uh Uh, The article speaks to some of the reasons uh, why that's niche and and kind of meaningful. And then on top of that, they have this, uh, uh, the acronym is BRAIN, this brain system for analyzing uh, the uh, ways that psychedelic drugs are interacting with receptors and helping them target other uh, future therapies, so I think that speaks to um, it's you know not being a one shot pony that there's more to come. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm following this with uh, with a lot of excitement and, and extremely excited for our colleagues over there. And um, yeah, that's kind of how I'm looking at it.
0: Yeah, Doctor Jackie von Sam is a is a friend of the show and and one of the most well read. Um, her papers are very well read. They, they get a lot of downloads from the American Chemical Society. So, Austin, I'd like to hear from you. You know, as your your job involves innovation, how in a, you know on your innovative scale index, um, what do you think of this announcement about focusing on, um, you know, DMT? And for me, you know, it seems like it's not a substance that a lot of other companies are focusing on right now.
2: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, in terms of a scale, um, you know, advanced research uh, in DMT is definitely on like very polar side of the scale. It's very, very advanced, very innovative. Um, you know, I think it's a, a great movement um, forward and kind of being able to explore the human brain and the human mind. Um, I think that's a part of a greater macro trend that, that's going on in the world is really understanding how the brain works, understanding how the mind works. Um, you know, some one of my f- um, favorite authors um, is um, you know, and, and, and researchers uh, is Dr. Carl Hart um, out of my alma mater, uh, Columbia University. Um, you know what he has done to really inform the world and educate the world that you know we only understand a, a fraction of a fraction of our mind, uh, and a lot of um, these plant-based uh, molecules like DMT uh, help us unlock uh, parts of our brain that we just have not explored. Um, And so to see funding go towards there um, is exceptional um, because that's really showing that um, the human species uh, is open-minded to be able to explore uh, deeper parts of of their brain. And that's why I get super, super excited uh, when I see that millions of dollars are are going to fund this type of research.
0: Excellent. Um, Thank you, Austin. Uh, Harold, you know what sort of research would you like to see? Uh, And you can ignore this question and just tell me what comes to mind as well. But, you know, they're talking about developing short-acting DMT molecules. And, you know, what if they wanted to put DMT in a beverage and commercialize it? What sort of questions would you have for them?
3: Yeah, I think um, it always comes back to Virtosa's mission to heal world right um, people uh, anxiety is stressful um, as long as this compound uh, pl- this plant can heal people you know we are in the same trench fighting the same war right so for me um, i like to understand the beneficial effects and uh, applying these uh, plans for um, in a s- specific uh, set and setting the mood state right um, and how we can I think we need a system to make sure um, we have put guardrail, uh, guardrail for, for, for patients and uh, a protocol for um, people to consume this. Because I currently, I don't see people just sipping on DMT beverage <laughs> on the 2 p.m. afternoon, right? So uh, there should be a purpose, there should be a protocol, and I like to see the benefit with the placeable with the results, right? Um, I really love to, you know, welcome another company, another uh, concept to heal people.
0: Thank you, Harold. I think that's terrific points. You know, are we just talking about something that people are going to use for fun or is it therapeutic? And if it's going to heal people, we need some data to back it up and make sure it's being delivered in in a safe and effective way. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if they're going to develop a a DMT beverage. It looks like they're going all in on a DMT patch. And and Nigam, real quick, before we go to the next story, do you want to comment on why the DMT patch is novel?
1: Yeah, I just uh, have the article right in front of me now. So they listed a few uh, bullets here about why this was something important to to pursue. Uh, So they're saying innovative delivery methods uh, combined with... Uh, DMT's short duration of action could lead to a revolutionary new line of psychiatric medicines. DMT is a natural compound produced by over 50 plant species and has even been found naturally in humans. It has several advantages over other more popular psychedelics, such as LSD and psilocybin, and they list the benefits. Humans do not appear to form a tolerance to DMT as they do with those other psychoactive substances. Number two, uh there's a shortens the time needed for inpatient psychedelic therapies and number 3 one of only one of the only psychedelics shown to maintain neurological activity at sub psychedelic doses aka microdoses so um i would say you know I would take this with a little grain of salt, having researched uh, these other uh, substances and the modifications that other groups are making to psilocybin and LSD to make them shorter acting, to you know, make them more take-home friendly and this kind of stuff. But so while this article is about DMT and SILERA raising money for you know DMT research, I see why they're saying this. But I think overarchingly, the concepts that they're bringing up here, tolerance issues, uh, being able to take it home versus having to take it with therapists in a hospital. Um, the long-term beneficial effects uh, are all important things that lots of groups in the psychedelics medicalization realm are chasing. So I thought it's kind of important to, to read some of those out loud. Absolutely, and you know,
0: speaking of you know a company raising money and expanding their product offerings, I'd like to transition to our next article entitled cannabis company companies looking to grow have more options than ever coming out of mj biz daily and, and one of the things that i liked about this article is it shares different strategies that companies take you know every every executive whether it's cannabis hemp or you know selling action figures wants to grow their business but how they achieve that can take different avenues and different paths you know whether they're Trying to build a brand, or through mergers and acquisitions, but you know, uh, Harold, I wanted to go to you. You know, as a, and, and get your thoughts on kind of how this article approached the subject, and you know, it gives a couple of case reports or examples of different companies um, and how they approach expansion, either by incorporating delivery services and e-commerce stuff. Um, but what do you think is one of the things that really stood out for you about? you know, the strategies that cannabis companies use to expand their business?
3: Right. Actually, I am doing the expansion for Vertosa right now. (laughs) I'm here sitting in Traverse City, uh, Michigan, uh, visiting uh, the number one Michigan testing lab, uh, you know, uh, Campion Analytica. So um, this year for Vertosa, for example, we, um, expansion is one of our big focus. And uh, for our clients, the cannabis infused beverage if Tosta is not in the new market, they literally cannot go to the new market. So we have mm. to be there first to pave the foundation. At least you have to have the same emotion. And uh, the, the, the logic we do expansion is we copy-paste our Oakland facility, our ingredient ratio, our machinery, and even the person, me. We, we send everything the same. We copy-paste so that our clients, when we come from... California to Michigan to launch. It's the same experience, same flavor, same packaging. And that is the, you know, standards we set for the whole industry. Um, so I see us expanding into, you know, different regions um, as the key factor for our brands to come later. So currently till today, we are active in California, Canada, Michigan, uh, Massachusetts, Maine, and Colorado and soon to be in Texas and other states. So, um, yeah, that's what I see from our eye regarding cannabis expansion.
0: Great points, Harold. That's very interesting. And so, you know, what I'm hearing from your perspective is that depending on your type of business, you might have to get out ahead of your clients expanding into different states. Like you might have to be the, the Johnny Appleseed, right? Going out there and creating the environment for them to be able to, expand. So kind of getting ahead of the demand a little bit in terms of that, because if the, you know, if a company expands and they don't have the Vertosa option, then that limits their product line. So I think that that's, um, you know, that's a fascinating approach to it and it must be a little bit of a gamble, right? You have to predict where the demand will be. Um, but that's, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, Austin, I want to get your perspective as well. Um, you know, some of this this article, some of this stuff seems pretty basic, like pretty fu- fundamental. Like, oh, we're going to have a strong brand. Oh, we're going to buy a company that does stuff well. Doesn't seem very innovative. <laughs> so, I kind of wanted to get your response to this and share some thoughts about this article.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate Jehan, and you know, echoing a, a lot of. Herald sentiments, um, you know, part of our, our job um, as executives and innovators in an emerging industry um, is the, the tried and true, you know, very common uh, venture capital uh, startup phrase is that we've got to be able to um, skate to where the hockey puck is going, not where it is today. Um, and that that is critical. We, we do have to, you know, be able to uh, identify trends uh, and make, um, you know, strategic and informed bets. Uh, on where the industry is going, um, the challenges um, with doing that in the cannabis industry is that it's evolving uh, at light speed. Um, you know, this is a, an industry that just came that has been around um, for, for many, many years in a less regulated uh, framework. But now that it is being adopted at the recreational level and starting to be to be regulated, there are a lot of um, challenges and opportunities uh, along the way. And so how businesses navigate you know, regulatory hurdles um, and you know, capitalize or really um, capture um, the, the bigger, greater opportunities has all got to be with intent. Um, and um, that intent has got to be focused on building a sustainable company. And it's hard. Um, it's incredibly hard because right now, our regulatory framework is fractured. Um, we all know that... You know, every single state that has adopted recreational cannabis um, has a slightly different uh, regulatory uh, guidelines. Um, The licensing procedures are are different. Uh, How to get a license and ultimately those barriers to entry um, to some become very prohibitive. Um, So, you know, companies um, like ours um, that are really aiming at being a platform to help and to advance uh, other brands uh, ultimately deliver amazing products. Uh, we've had to you know, really take a step back and very, be very intentful on in how we expand uh, and how we uh, work with companies. Um, and the reason is because you know, we are providing a, um, a new form factor, um, you know, cannabis beverages, um, you know, cannabis um, edibles that are fast acting um, and ultimately deliver on the promise of creating a more enjoyable, repeatable, reliable, and consistent experience. Um, mm. And it's that consistency um, that is critical to really having this industry um, you know, really blossom. Um, and the reason, I, and I liken it really back to traditional CPG. Can- cannabis, at the end of the day, at a recreational level, um, are CPG products. Um, you know, they're consumer packaged goods. And so when you look at uh, traditional CPG, the, the, the biggest and most well-known is um, like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, soda companies. Um, and what consumers want is consistency. That builds trust. Um, so when you open up a Coca-Cola in New York city, um, you want to know that that Coca-Cola and taste is going to be exactly the same as if you open it up in Los Angeles, it's consistent. It, it just has to be, that's the trust that you build with yeah. the brand. And that's the <laughs> hardest part in a fractured regulatory cannabis space where you have cultivators in California, cultivators in Michigan, cultivators in, 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 in New Jersey, um, developing, you know, flowers and, and products and you have brands that are relying on the supply chain um, to be able to have a consistent product in those different states, but it's hard to do that because you have different cultivars, you have different extraction methods, and so how do you, or how do we, rather, as industry professionals, help to refine and create a consistent um, product? Well, that's you know that's how and why you know Vertosa exists. We have figured out the SOPs around the supply chain to say, and here's how we refine our process to make. Uh, a fast-acting ingredient that allows brands to build off of and reliably know and trust that whether I'm working with Vertosa in, um, in Michigan or I'm working with Vertosa in California, I'm going to get a consistent product a consistent ingredient to, to put into my uh, product and, and ultimately share, uh, with, with, with our brand.
0: You know, Austin, I love that, you know, consistency and experience and flavor, um, you know, being able to anticipate what a product will do to you is very important. And I used to, when I did do trainings about cannabis standards and product safety, I always like to talk about Budweiser. I'm not endorsing the product, but I like to use it as an example because it says the king of beers on it. And I like to challenge my students say, why is it the king of beers? Is it because it's the most delicious tasting beer on the market? Is it the most nutritious beer on the market? No, it's because no matter where you open it, it's the same. If you open it in Germany, uh, you open it in Argentina. If you open it in Antarctica, it's it's uniform. It's consistent to a sort of standard. Exactly. Um, So you know, Nigam, you're no stranger to the cannabis industry, and you're out there in the hyper competitive market of California. Um, You know, in addition to having you know intent and thoughtful. Applications of your resources to expand your business. What else should businesses consider um, as they're expanding? Is it just about oh, uh, delivery? Let's get let's make sure we have tons of delivery services. Oh, everyone likes blue baggies now for marijuana, so we're gonna put all everything in blue baggies. Like, you know, do you tr- do you chase the trends? Do you just stick to the fundamentals of business expansion? As like as Harold and Austin pointed out, you know. Yeah, what are I your think,
1: thoughts? Well, one one reason that I like Vertosa and that I like Harold and Austin and that we invited them on the show is because of the approach that they just said. Um and and uh you know, I've known these guys for several years and and the the way they're going about it, building Vertosa as a CPG company, as a company with standards, uh as a company like Har- I, Harold I loved what you were saying, copy paste, copy paste, standards, people, equipment. Um Recipes, so on. So, um, I, I do have a question about that. Sorry to jump in. No, but go ahead, Harold. How do you copy yourself?
0: Do you make clones and, and put them at all the locations? I mean, it must be tricky, right?
3: Actually, <laughs> no. Actually, it's easier because my production, uh, our production technician, do a better job in production, you know, than <laughs> me. So I, I'm I'm only here. Uh, you know, I'm traveling it really for the initial setup. I meet the partners, set up the lab you know, meet the labs, testing labs. So everything is figured out. So the next trip, you know, we're going to send our top, you know, technicians here. Oh, they they do a better job than me. Uh,
0: thank you, Nick. I'm sorry to jump
1: no, in there. No, no problem. Um, So what I was saying, so uh, I, I love what you guys are doing and, and that makes a ton of sense. But uh, in this article that, that we kind of reviewed from MJ Biz Daily, cannabis companies looking to grow uh, more options than ever. Um, they talk about all this stuff, Jehan, that you were saying about, uh getting licensed. This is about multi-state expansion, which is also what Vertosa is doing. But um, these guys are talking about grabbing um, licenses and limited licenses states. They're talking about putting up uh, urgently businesses that are going to do well in that moment. So like in the pandemic, they bought a delivery service in Sacramento that was already the second most developed delivery business in the state by the number of drivers they had. They're talking about Oh, there's limited licenses in Michigan. Oh, we're gonna go buy three. Um, so it's like a little bit. Uh, and and I'm gonna tie back to what Austin was saying before um, about some groups that him and I had worked with together before that intentionally started as benefit corps uh, with a mission to reduce the pesticide in the you know cannabis on the market or to give money back uh, to indigenous populations like we see in the psychedelic space and stuff like this. So. Um, You know, this specific article I thought was a little, it's not wrong. Uh, It's just more tailored to the cold hard business of MSOs and what they've been trying to do over the last three, four years to grow up. So, which is one thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, They that can bring uh, standards that can bring good product in its own way. But I think we've all seen, I'm not going to name names right now. I think we've all seen MSOs that. Don't have consistency uh, across different stores in the same state, or especially in other states. Uh, And I think we've seen MSOs that have grown too fast and grown too big for their shoes. I'll just say, um, MedMen, you know, look at the MedMen stock chart over the last three years. I mean, these. It, it they, they open
0: all... a store in Manhattan with nothing to sell. It's like, <laughs> the, wow, you are ahead of the curve so much they, so that you've fallen off of it. But yeah, don't yeah. they
1: sell iPhones there? I thought they selling <laughs> iPhones at the, uh, at the New York MedMen. <laughs> so, anyways, I'm uh, I, I kind of went on a few different angles here, but he gave it to me pretty broadly. I think Austin had some uh, some follow ups. Yeah.
0: So so Austin, um, you know, when I think about consistency, I think well, people must have a good supply chain, but when i look at the cannabis industry going state to state to state the infrastructure varies greatly even down to like where is electricity and water available and in what amounts and so i was wondering if you could speak to infrastructure and supply chain issues and you know i, I guess i want to if i put on my uh, hat i don't own a cannabis company but if i did and i put on that hat and i'm like oh it's not my fault i just i just can't get the right cinsemia to my location to put it in the, in the cannabis cigarette rolling machine. Uh, it's, you know, it's not my fault. My product isn't consistent. It's the supply chain.
2: Um, thoughts That's, on that? Yeah. I, I'm so glad you said that, Jahan. Um, you know, when you say it's not, not my fault, right. Um, you are, you're giving up responsibility. Um, and I think as any business owner, um, you've got to take full responsibility. And especially as a business owner in the cannabis um, industry, we have to work together to take the responsibility to build a sustainable infrastructure um, to serve as a platform for other businesses to thrive. And the reason why is because of the cannabis industry professionals, we have to overcome Decades, centuries of stigma to normalize cannabis uh, as a, a recreational or medicinal product and be able to recognize the cannabis industry as being a valid industry for commerce of trade and commerce. And so that, that requires the responsibility of operators to again, focus investment dollars on building an infrastructure that allows for people to, to innovate. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, when I look at, at innovation, um, and I look at the cannabis industry, um, you know, the, the tried and true, um, matrix of you innovate based on, on form or or function. Um, you don't do both. Otherwise you kind of skip a, a few light years ahead. So what we're doing, uh, you know, here at Virtosa specifically, is that we're innovating uh, on the form. Cannabis uh, as a function, we, we know. THC, CBD, we have a lot of research there, but we have a good understanding of what it does to you, how it makes you feel. Um, but the form uh, is a beverage that's very different than what is very traditional. So making a beverage is not easy. Uh, making a beverage, um, first of all, from a uh, science perspective, a cannabis beverage. We got to take an oil and turn it into something that is water dispersible. Um, so that's a lot of the chemistry work um, that Harold does with with our team at, at Vertosa. We have that piece pr- pretty darn good, um, and we know how to we know how to copy and paste that across state to state. But before we even touch that cannabis oil, we need to ensure that the cannabis uh, oil itself is consistent state to state. That requires the cannabis extraction to be consistent state to state that requires the cultivation to be consistent state to state. And so when I see operators that NIGAM is talking about you know, could go into states kind of like a, a bully, to be quite honest, and this like a smash and grab of licenses. Those are just capitalistic folks trying to leverage those licenses and flip those licenses and make money. Um, I've seen it happen in Colorado. I've seen it happen in other states. They're not taking that responsibility of investing in infrastructure. And so when you look at a traditional CPG uh, industry and infrastructure you have millions of dollars being invested in capital expenditure things you're not going to get an immediate return on things that are going to take years to get an immediate return uh, to get any return on. I'm talking about you know beverage manufacturing lines, um, sterilization lines these are mil- you know multi-million dollar operations that you've got to take a bet on and invest in that infrastructure so you have a consistent product. Um, and, and we haven't seen much of that, um, but we've seen some of it in instances that give us hope uh, here in California. You have operators that say, you know what, there aren't co manufacturing for beverages here, here, here in California. So they've invested millions of dollars to build co manufacturing facilities. And no, no one's doing it hundred percent right all of the time. There's so much learning, even ourselves. You know, we have, we have had um, some hurdles and, and, and shortfalls in, in our process, but it's that learning to get people better and to take that responsibility to say, "Hey, if you want a consistent cannabis beverage, then you've got to have a consistent manufacturing process. That you have you have to have a, a bottling line, a canning line, a sterilization line. You've got to make that investment, and you're starting to see that infrastructure build here here in California." Um, because without it, it uh, that co-manufacturing becomes a bottleneck uh, for brands to release a beverage. And so, when we look at our brands that we work with, um, you see on my shelf, you know, uh, everyone from PBR to Vita Cocoa and, and so many others, they have to be able to develop and build that beverage uh, and expand outside of California. And so that means investing in co-manufacturing bottling lines, sterilization lines in other states so that that product is made in the exact same SOP um, that it was in the the first state that it launched. And so that's that piece of responsibility. It's not just going and buying licenses and trying to flip them uh, and make a, a quick buck. It's really taking... The ownership of saying, "I want to build a category." Um, take, for example, cannabis beverages. We need to build a category, and we need to create more more beverages so consumers have more options and more choices to be able to explore. Um, you know, this new form factor of cannabis, and that just that just takes the intent to say, "All right." you know, this isn't, a, we're not in it for a quick buck. We're in it for the long-term. So our investment has got to look like five and 10 years out. If we spend millions of dollars helping to build infrastructure around beverage manufacturing, then we're making a bet that it's going to have some return on capital five to 10 years, not necessarily two, two, two years um, or a few months, uh, like a lot of these folks are trying to do with the, flipping these licenses. Um, so to me, it just comes down to, the the want and the desire to build a consistent supply chain, a sustainable supply chain, and that requires significant capex investment um, to be able to essentially be able to consistently manufacture a product uh, in its new form, um, like like a beverage.
0: Great, great points. Um, you know, I really like that. You know, take responsibility. There are solutions out there. It might require investment and some insight and planning, but just because you can't get you know cannabis from California to your dispensary in New York doesn't you know just because there isn't federal legalization doesn't mean you can't have a consistent product that there are there are operating procedures, there's training procedures there are there are methods to navigate the
2: madness. Yes uh, there there are, cer- there are certainly solutions out there. Um, you just have to work a little bit harder and, and think a little bit more uh, in, in the application um, so so that they're realized.
0: All right. Well, any final comments on this article? Going once, going twice, So the license.
3: Oh, Harold has a bid in. Yeah. So I think uh, I like Austin's comment regarding uh, the partners, right? What kind of partner we want to work with? What kind of partner can be successful long-term? Um, you really have to start with why, right? Why are you are in here? Um, I mean, I've been traveling through the North America, working with our partners. And, uh, you know, it's it's really, uh, if we, you start from the healing, from the, your why, and align with them on that mission, that is a much better partnership. Uh, if you, are, if the partnership is thinking about, you know, how we can squeeze profit from Bertosa's emotion, and if you think all that, you know, what if we, did, we didn't squeeze enough money in the first three months? Is it going to be done? Um, So, you know, align the vision is going to be the key step when we are looking for our partnership across space.
0: Yeah, that is a great point and a beautiful transition because our next story is about partnerships and it's about the Heroic Hearts project in the UK, which, you know, provides opportunities for healing by connecting military and emergency service veterans struggling with mental trauma to psychedelic therapy treats around the world. And they are partnering with the Imperial College London and these types of partnerships, you know, I'd love to see these more and more in the cannabis space as well, but you know, this is a very interesting partnership. They're going to do a world-class observational study on the psychological and, and physiological effects of psilocybin on veterans with traumatic brain injury so not just you know um trauma or ptsd but uh, a physical issue a physical injury and i think that's going to be potentially a real test um you know Nigam, i usually like to ask you about n numbers and how many people are participating in the study but since the study's just announced uh, i can't have you pick it apart just yet but um
1: I could say I, we, I could say nice things about studies too. Come on now.
0: All right. Well, say something nice about this study because I think it's really I think it's really promising to add to this sort of largely quote unquote anecdotal evidence base we have.
1: Yeah, um, I I support that. It's also nice to see it coming out of Imperial College of London. I I don't know if I've seen any university or research core as far along in the you know third psychedelics renaissance as imperial college someone else feel free to tell me if you know it but they they seem like major leaders in the space from from my tracking um it one other thing when i saw they're saying this is the first ever observational study uh psychological effects uh, psychological and physiological effects of psilocybin um I immediately thought of the unlimited science and uh, Johns Hopkins study, which is a large scale observational study uh, related to use of psilocybin. Uh, but the the difference here is this is focused specifically on veterans with traumatic brain injury. So I think that the the unlimited uh, Johns Hopkins thing is great, the large scale, all that. But this type of thing is needed too to look at the. Uh, niche, right? And and even though we don't have the data, I can uh, make one comment to studies we've done before, or, or we've reviewed before. Will where you'll see a headline, you know, I'm just gonna toss something out there. You'll see a headline like, "Study shows cannabis use does not cause heart disease." And then how did they study it? They looked at data from. 30,000 patients coming through some hospital in Milwaukee over 10 years. And you see that the, and then the metrics are not that great. The, metrics like the are questions
0: like, are, like, are like, have you ever seen a joint? Exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, you've seen <laughs> a they're, joint? They're like, oh. There's an association from people seeing being exposed to cannabis. And yeah, like you said, how do they measure exposure? How do they measure outcomes? It's, it's, Her, it's, yeah, it's it, an issue.
1: Exactly. So, anyways, what I'm saying is uh, to, so there are these issues with observational studies or um, just like, you know, data studies in hindsight, trying to draw conclusions. So, um, I'll be very curious to see how they perform this, how they track it, but just to see them focusing on a niche topic traumatic brain injury in veterans, uh, physiologic, physiological and psychological effects from psilocybin use, period. And that's the niche thing. I think that's great. So um, yeah. I'll be tracking this closely, and uh, and and I I would say coming out of you know Imperial College London, I already have some faith that it'll it'll yield something meaningful for us to learn.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I like things that are pointy and focused, and you know it's like uh, a lot of times you see people's research goals is to treat everything, and having kind of a focused outcome, focused resources gives me hope especially for something so complicated as traumatic brain injury. Um, Harold, I wanted to ask you, you know, you see these types of partnerships. Do you get some like a mushroom envy when you see this versus cannabis or like, do you think it's too soon for cannabis companies to have these types of partnerships and this focused study? Um, You know, uh, you know, I guess I'm just trying to get your kind of feeling to this. Like, you know, me, I'm a little jealous, like being in the cannabis space so long and like psychedelics seem to be doing all these partnerships and getting all this like praise. And it just seems so easy for them. Um, Yeah. What what are some of your thoughts
3: about the article? Um, So it would be easy for now for us to look in from outside to see, oh, somebody has a partnership, somebody kick off a project. But for on a scientific side, um, for anything to finish, passing the finish line, you need millions of dollars, years of investment. And sometimes you fail, right? So I don't think it's going to, it seems easy now, but it's a long journey. So I don't feel uh, envy uh, towards a cannabis company coming into a mushroom space. Uh, I encourage them, right? Like I said, if it's healing, we support. However, we as Virtosa, we also debate internally what company we are. Uh, Are we a fish oil company? Are we a cannabis company? Are we... Are we a, a mushroom company? And uh, um, and the, the debate always comes to the conclusion that we need to focus. Uh, even cannabis still have a big stigma. It's, our job is not done yet. We're still figuring out the beverage, how to make it stable, how to make it even faster on site, how to craft the experience. We're just at the tipping, t- tipping out of the iceberg, right? So we need to focus on getting cannabis stigma removed totally. And for me, um, I believe if for through all those years of efforts, can successfully remove the stigma of cannabis and build trust to the consumer, we can naturally build trust to consumer for, for mushroom, for mushroom shots, right? And when the time is right, when the legalization happens nationally. So, you know, for me, let's focus on cannabis and make cannabis uh, accessible to all, and then targeting uh, what else is over there.
0: I think that's a terrific point. You know, just from the 30,000 foot views, there's so many things to work on for cannabis that we shouldn't get sidetracked by partnerships because this could take 10 years for them to figure out how they're going to pull it off. And like you said, we're trying to figure out real world public health issues, creating reliable products, consistent products. And destigmatizing the use of cannabis, moving away from smoking and into more traditional methods of consuming products. I think those are terrific points, um, Austin. I wanted to ask you, you know, when you see this type of research partnerships and studies being announced, what sort of other areas could this type of approach be applied, or, or do you see other examples of this in terms of brain injury and brain health and these types of partnerships?
2: Yeah, absolutely, I um, uh, Appreciate you asking that. Um, you know, I think that the word um, that you know I like to highlight um, that you mentioned is focus. Um, you know, to to Nigam's point, you see a lot of you know PR article headlines that are really just meant to to grab people's attention, um, and there's not a lot of meat on those bones. Um, you know, you start peeling the layers of the onion back, you you're, there's all type of opportunities to to poke holes uh, in the research, and and you ask, oh. Well, why are you doing this research it really lacks focus you're trying to do everything um, so when it comes to, to to focus I think that is the most critical point for cannabis research and, and all other um, you know plant compounds that are being researched today um, you know years ago um, when I was working at eurofen scientific um, you know I started a, a few different research programs um, to help support some some academia research and I found that uh, the National Institute of Health, uh, when it comes to cannabis research, I uh, had four primary areas with which they were funding. Um, it was, you know, number one, the endocannabinoid system. Number two, uh, cannabidiol. Um, number th- number three, um, uh, cannabinoids in in, in in general. So beyond just cannabidiol, to beyond just CBD. And the last um, is uh, therapeutic uh, effects or applications. Of, of cannabis. And it's that last piece when you focus on therapeutic effects um, that has seen the most growth um, since 2014. Pre-2014, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of public funds going uh, to that application. Post 2014, when Colorado went recreational, you have seen compounded annual growth over 10%. I'm talking about 15% in funding year over year, and it keeps moving up um, specifically for therapeutic effects, and so when you look at M- Nigam's point on veterans here in the U.S., you know the, the reason why that focus is because there's been a lot of trauma to to our veterans, and just here recently with you know wars overseas, you know there's a lot of PTSD uh, in the world today, and that is that helps address a population, um, a community um, that is very specific uh, here in the U.S., and that's going to help attract more research. Um, because it's helping, you know, the people that are 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 fighting and defending our country. Um, it's very similar to um, the NFL, um, where you know there are a lot of brain trauma from heavy collisions and hits. You know, I played college football; um, but I've experienced that. Before we started the podcast, we talked about the chronic pain um, that I'm in as a result of, of, of football. Um, well, the NFL, um, you know. You know, more recently, awarding over a million dollars in grants for researches specifically to investigate therapeutic potential of marijuana and CBD as an alternative to opioids for treating pain is significant um, because this is going to help, as Harold was saying, destigmatize. Um, when you kind of take a step back and look at the macros, you say, okay, you know, how do we get the money in to, to research? Well, we got to make people feel safe and comfortable. Uh, with the research, so let's be specific on who we're helping. Uh, let's help v- veterans. That's going to really do well for public morale and getting public support. Um, let's help NFL players. Yes, the number one uh, source of entertainment <laughs> in the U.S. of football. Let's let's help these players have better better lives after they they spend the time in the NFL. Um, so it's that focus, you know, really on therapeutic potential. Of, of, of cannabis uh, and, and other you know, plant-based medicines that's going to help move that needle forward. Um, when you're trying to do everything, um, it, it, you know, you're going to get lost. But when you're focused specifically on, on, on therapy uh, and then get even more granular on you know, uh, the impact that it has on, on brain trauma and PTSD, that's where I think that is the low-hanging fruit that you can get some, quick, some, some wins uh, to therefore be able to compound the research and, and go even further. Speaking of research, Harold, isn't
0: Vertoso involved in an IRB study? Could you uh, explain a little bit of that for the
3: listener? Sure. Uh, even though we focus a lot of our current energy on the adult use side, but we, you know, start our IRB study to really dig in the benefit of the cannabinoids. So we have a currently uh, one IRB study with the local hospital in Oakland and the surgeon there. They're in charge of fixing the patient with gunshots and car accidents. And those patients are super under super trauma physically and mentally. And the only thing the doctor can subscribe even today is opioid. So they're just fed up. You know, they want to get better solutions. So actually, they reached out to Vertosa and proposed this ARB study. Can cannabis emotion help patients reduce the pain, reduce the use of opioid? And we are super interested in the study, and we provide uh, the hospital with a placebo and uh, cannabis emotion. And uh, uh, it's going to be uh, a 260-people uh, study uh, over six months, and uh, the results will be super um, you know, interesting for us to leverage uh, and uh, you know, broadcast uh, the benefit of cannabis. Uh, this is just resonating with Austin's um, comments on how cannabis can help remove the pain for um, the professional athletes. But you know, us uh, who get injured can also be the beneficiary from from cannabis.
0: Yeah, Uh, thank you, Harold. Fascinating stuff. And that wraps up our popular literature coverage. And we'll be back after a short break with rapid fire science. (music) Back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed scientific articles. Our first article comes from the Journal of Trends in Food Science and Technology, and is entitled, Innovative in Emerging Applications of Cannabis in Food and Beverage Products, From an Illicit Drug to a Potential Ingredient for Health Promotion. Now, it's you know, no secret that adults are buying cannabis for adult use. And, you know, also people are using it to for ver- treat various ailments and conditions. And this is a controversial topic in the United States as it's still not federally legal. Um, but the fact is, is that the cannabis market continues to grow in the U.S. and the world. And so this review aimed to synthesize all these kind of aspects of cannabis use, um, highlighting applications in the food and beverage industry. Um, so I guess I'm going to go to Austin first so um is did they get the story right here? You know, these are scientists writing about cannabis, food and beverage. I mean, this is you know your focus i I gotta wonder, you know, is this are, do they propose good solutions, or are there you know their words falling out of uh, are they becoming part of the precipitate is it as it were
2: <laughs> Well, I'd say you know uh getting it right uh, or wrong there's no right or wrong um you know in, in my opinion um you know they just kind of there just kind of is um i think there's a lot of good bad and, and ugly uh in a lot of research i think what um was done or structured correctly is to identify what we talked about a little bit before on the use cases or, or why uh cannabinoids the article does a great job of structuring and calling out um, that, you know, there's research on cannabinoids, um, there's research on therapeutic effects uh, of cannabis, and there's research uh, around um, the endocannabinoid system as a whole. Um, And so, you know, when you look at and kind of narrow in on that focus that we were just talking about on therapeutic effects, um, you know, you kind of see the call out um, specifically around cannabis extracts and, and terpenes. And I think the story that they're highlighting here is that you know, there, there is, you know, and could be, you know, a potential wide range of pharmacological activities that are researched and reported um, uh, between that synergistic effect between cannabinoids and, and, and terpenes. Um, and so that's what I get really, really excited um, about. You know, at Vertosa here, we're innovating, you know, uh, new experiences. Um, that's what I t- tell clients all the time is that we're inherently breaking down the plant Uh, into its individual components and building it back up to design new experiences. And so what the article does a great job of doing is showing and highlighting that there are therapeutic effects uh, between cannabinoids and terpenes. We do need to explore that uh, a little bit more, a lot more, uh, but does a good job of highlighting uh, a few. Um, One of which I like is really kind of that potential of, of alpha and beta pinene. Um, you know, it, it relates to another uh, peer-reviewed uh, article, um, kind of entitled "Therapeutic Potential of Alpha-Pinene and Miracle Gift of Nature," uh, where you know it ultimately concludes with you know understanding that most investigations uh, have not fully studied the bioavailability uh, of alpha-pinene uh, uh, and in and beta-pinene in the human body, uh, but it is very clear that these terpenes have antimicrobial, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, and anti uh, allergic properties. Um, although several of these studies are in vivo, and more recently a few clinical studies have assessed uh, you know, pining's biological effects, um, it does a good job of calling out that there's further efforts are needed uh, to deepen knowledge in this field. And, and that's it. You know, We know that there is opportunity uh, but further efforts uh, need to be deepened to really understand, you know, what the full impact is, because as we continue to build the plant down and, and build it back up, you know, we want to innovate formulas or solutions that are specific to pain management, stress, stress management, um, you know, helping to create uh, better quality sleep. Um, we can get there uh, with the, the research that's currently being done on therapeutic effect of cannabinoids and terpenes. Um, now it's just all of our responsibilities to, to advance that research so we can deepen uh, our knowledge.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned pinene because it gives me an opportunity to reference Shakespeare. And the effects of pinene have been hinted at for a really long time. So it's surprising that there isn't more research on this really cool uh, terpene that occurs in nature. So in, in, in Hamlet, Um, There's a scene where a woman goes around handing out everyone like little plants, pansies and sprigs. And one of them is rosemary, which she says is Mm -hmm. for remembrance, the herb of remembrance. And it has Mm -hmm. pinene in it, which uh, we know from the literature is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor and aids with memory. And it might have potential at sort of um, counteracting some of the effects of THC, for example, if you're susceptible to memory impairment or fogginess issues. So I think, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the the pinene terpenes. I think understanding their pharmacology will be very important for the future. And as you said, for the experience. Um, Harold, I want to go to you next. And I was going to ask you about technical challenges and beverages, but I I mostly just want to hear what was your favorite part of this article? Did you have, did you like the figures or was there a section you thought was just really good?
3: Right. So I read the article this morning, and uh, towards the end, the article discussed uh, cannabis-infused uh, food and beverage. Um, the biggest uh, shortcoming of that sector in the author's eye is the slow onset. Because the slow onset compared to inhalation, um, new users get overdosed easily. And uh, I, I was thinking, hmm, I need to reach out to this author and give some samples to
2: him, TOSA
3: samples. <laughs> uh, well, so uh, so this is what I envision where TOSA um, going to research route in the coming years. Uh, we are providing um, different skills of emotion, different job size, different emulsifiers, And we, we're going to know the PK uh, property of all those emotions. And then we are also investigating uh, the safety data, right? So we with the, uh, and also those skills of emotion are applied to many, many skills on the market to the consumer. So if we combine all those factors into one package, can we uh, pitch to uh, research, researchers, universities, clinics, uh, institutions that, hey, use those uh, package for your study because, um, you know, it's accurately dosed we can produce any motion at large scale, and we know the PK, we know it's safe, then just use that. CBN, terpin C B D, THC, we can give you all those building blocks. So that is part of the milestone for me, uh, for us to achieve uh, in the coming years.
0: So uh, if, if the authors of the paper are listening to it, if you're listening, Ruan, Yanser soros de Castro, you can contact Harold and talk about research that might help fill in some of the gaps um, at your science of food engineering campus in Brazil. Um, but uh, Austin, I want to go to you next um, and talk about, you know where what is when people say slow onset, you know, and people talk about bioavailability, you know, what's a good way to kind of think about that or measure that or look at sort of drug onset?
2: Yeah, great question, uh, Jahan. Um, you know, I always liken this uh, back to Experiences. And so, um, you know, many people have a cannabis experience they're familiar with uh, in college uh, where they had a brownie. It's the infamous brownie or the cookie experience. Um, and they have a brownie. Uh, or that- for me, it was a lemon square in college. That was like, oh, wow. You're cow. fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Lemons, that fancy. Um, um, <laughs> well, you have a baked good. Let's say that. Um, so you have a cannabis baked good. And you had it in college and, you know, whether it be that brownie or or that lemon square, you ate it and you didn't feel anything. Um, You waited around an hour. um, You're probably hungry. um, So you may have had another one because it tasted so good as well. And you still didn't feel anything. Another half hour passes, 45 minutes, boom, somewhere around an hour, 45, two hours. You're on a rocket ship off to the moon uh, or you're right in your couch knocked out because you're just overwhelmingly high. Um, and the reason is, is most of us know is because your body had to metabolize, um, that oil that was in there. It had to get processed and it takes time to to metabolize, um, you know, oils and and food generally. Um, so the problem then became, well, I don't know what to, how to predict this, this cannabis edible. Like, I don't know when I'm going to get high. I can't wait around an hour, hour and a half after, um, you know, I consume something to feel it. So. To Hero's point that he's making is that the problem we aim to solve is a predictable, reliable, and consistent experience. Um, ultimately, you know, accelerating that onset so you can feel the effects of cannabinoids faster. Um, it has to be analogous to, you know, other um, actives in the world. You got to feel it within 10 to 20 minutes while, while you're consuming it. And so it's and
0: and maybe not feel it all at once like it's just like your bell gets wrong because um you know that really turned me off from edibles and I guess I had a little bit of stigma because that was not a great experience I was like playing video games on the couch and then suddenly it was like
2: lights out but uh, that's right (laughs) Jahan. It's like it's, and that's that's the problem, and other stigma in the edibles category that we're trying to overcome. So we now we got stigmas around cannabis and smoking, and then you have the bad edible experience stigma that you have got to, you know, really win people's trust again. And so that kind of highlights not only onset but metered dosing um, that becomes so critical in designing that experience. Um, So not only it's not the the experience of just THC or CBD or other minor cannabinoids, but it's really as simple as, you know, how can I microdose, um, you know, cannabinoids so I can know and understand how they make me feel from a metered approach. And so what Harold and our team, our our science and research team has done an exceptional job of doing is partnering with third parties to ultimately quantify and measure onset and bioavailability of our emulsion systems, um, you know, we recently were awarded a patent uh, on one of our uh, plant-based natural emulsion systems, um, and you know, having that patented as something something unique, um, we've taken that to the next level uh, to measure and quantify that onset and bioavailability um, of um, that specific emulsion. Um, And so that emulsion in itself, um, you know, through a third party IRB approved method, um, you know, we did the work of consuming, you know, this emulsion system, it was, uh, it uh, it included 20 milligrams of, of CBD And, you know, all of us, it was like a a group of of patients, we consumed, we got blood work uh, drawn. So we were um, having, you know, blood uh, samples taken and we were measuring and quantifying the amount of CBD in the blood uh, at intervals from, you know, time point zero um, to the end of the day. Um, And we found that, you know, the delivery system, the patented uh, emulsion uh, ultimately, uh, allowed for blo- uh, for cannabinoids to be expressed in the blood within 10 to 15 minutes. Um, so therefore, you're knowing that you know there's small concentrations of cannabinoids that are entering the bloodstream within 10 to 15 minutes. You're starting to feel the effects, and then ultimately, as you look at the curve, you know you're starting more and more cannabinoids are being present as it goes from 15 minutes to 30 minutes to 60 minutes, and that's where the Cmax and Tmax met, and so that was peak bioavailability at the 60 minute mark and then it started to come down over you know another 60 minutes hour and a half. So now you're basically you know riding a, a, a wave. you're going up, you're getting a little bit higher, 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 60 minutes, and then coming back down after you know an hour and a half, two hours. So now the consumer can more safely and reliably predict what this experience is. When you have or take you know one of these PBR, Um, infused seltzers, 10 milligrams of of THC, now you know that, all right, if I consume half of this, I'm consuming exactly five milligrams. And in 15 minutes, I'm going to feel it. And I'm going to know if if five milligrams is good for me. If I want a little bit more, I want a little bit less. And now I can start titrating um, myself because now I have a good understanding of how These cannabinoids affect me in this time interval that I'm allotted to to be able to safely consume. And so it's that aspect um, that Harold has done an exceptional job at, at focusing in on the onset time, the peak bioavailability, uh, and the overall experience to make it predictable uh, and, and pleasurable. Um, And then all we have to do to really kind of create or design new experiences is swap out the cannabinoids or or swap out the terpenes because the delivery system uh, is effective. Now we just have to, you know, put different uh, uh compounds in that delivery system. So I kinda liken it to a roller coaster, if you will. If the you know are the emulsion system is the the actual cart, uh and then the cannabinoids are the people inside the cart. So we can take you on that ride um uh, and we can just switch out THC, CBN, THCV, whatever we want. Um and, and that's that's where the fun starts to happen.
0: I, I like that. And um I wanna I should have probably asked this question in the beginning, but um I, I was Either you know, Harold, you're welcome to jump in here, but you know, Austin, you know, you might have a definition for bioavailability. So, in just simple terms, because you know, I spoke with some of our listeners this morning, and a lot of them aren't scientists, and they they're like writing things down and trying to figure out. So, um, so I'm asking for a friend. You know, what is bio bioavailability? Of course, I know what it is, but I was just wondering, you know, if you could uh, maybe one of you could give a simple definition of bioavailability.
2: Harold, do you
3: want to go uh, for it? Sure. Yeah. So, in my understanding, bioavailability. Okay. I can have a metaphor. Our emotion droplets is a bus, and the cannabinoid is the passenger. You drink the emotion from the beverage, and the bus is unload the passenger into your blood. So, how many passengers get unloaded from the bus into your blood? That is called bioavailability. So am, I, am I saying that right? Or
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just picturing the last time I rode a bus, and like, you know, I ha- like I'm like, gosh, does everyone get off at the same stop, or are you dropping them off at different places along the the road in the body? Um, so I, yeah,
1: I, I like well, that analogy. That's 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 a further now that's targeted delivery, right? So <laughs> I think Harold's thing, everyone's getting off the bus in one place at kind of the intersect of of. Uh, of blood in in the gut, right? Yeah. I think that's what Harold's saying. The other, Jayhan, where you're saying dropping off at different places is like targeted delivery, like we deal with in oncology or other things, which is of interest as well. For example, think about treating uh, certain organ cancers with cannabis. It's like, okay, well, how do we deliver cannabinoids to the pancreas? Or how do we deliver cannabinoids to the... You know what? Whatever organ. So uh, I like this bus metaphor, and we could take it further for the targeted delivery if we want, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and, and maybe nano emulsion is a rental car,
1: but um,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, or or a, but, or a jetliner or a cruise ship, right? Yeah, no, I, no, I, was, I, think, I think it matters what products.
0: That was an awesome analogy, Harold, and um, you know I I think I. You know, speaking of stability and product consistency, I want to move on to our next topic from the journal Molecules, which looks at a stability evaluation of DMT and harmaline, these alkaloids in ayahuasca tea samples. So, you know, traditional use of ayahuasca, which contains DMT, is is a hallucinogenic beverage, is used for religious purposes, you know, in Brazil and, and other countries. And it's thought to have a lot of therapeutic potential for some mental health disorders. However, you know, there's a lot of different ways to prepare this beverage, store this beverage and, and use it. And, um, you know, since you guys are, you know, kind of experts in the beverage space, I'm wondering if I could borrow your cannabis brains and explore the quality of this project. Because we have a you know a lot of listeners who are in the psychedelic space and trying to sort of uh, crack this nut, if you will. Um, and, you know, we looked at a study previously that looked at psychedelic mushrooms and, you know, in their raw form, storing them as just a whole mushroom seemed to be the most stable way. Now it's getting more complicated. Now people are looking at different preparations. So, you know, storing in a refrigerator, storing it, you know, um, freeze thaw cycles and things like that. So I guess just let's start off with the fundamentals this time. What is a stability study? Uh, Harold, if you want to kind of discuss, like why are stability studies important? Uh, um, I'm I'm sure you've done them for your products. Um, So it's like when people are looking at this research, what should they keep in their brain as they're assessing before we talk about the data?
3: Yeah, I think um, there are two uh, words, efficacy and safety. Um, I like your analogy. Efficacy, put product on the shelf. Safety, keep it on the shelf. So let's talk about two those two concepts. When the THC, I'm using THC as an example, when THC gets oxidized within the beverage, it may form CBN, but it also may form other substance that is not shown on the COA uh. along the journey. So, so from our consumer, uh, we see, okay, how many percentage of THC we get lost over the time, right? 10%, 20%. And but, you know, that is the part of efficacy. You know, it get 10% less high. Well, that 10%, what, it doesn't, what does it change to? So I'm visiting the lab here in Michigan. I'm working with, um, you know, start to initiate this project with a university right here. The professor here is using MMR, and he's an MMR expert. He can tell, you know, what are, are their uh, byproducts within that is not shown on the COA. How many, what are they, how many are they during the process? So uh, that is on the THC side. Well, if you change that molecule to you know, mushroom or other molecules, their oxidation could be just one reaction. It could be reduction. It could be light, you know, UV-initiated um, uh, reactions. And all, all the other reactions, we don't know. So the, 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 the key compound in the beginning, well, if you want to make a stable drink, the key component in the beginning will be migrating if you don't know where it goes, and it can lose the efficacy, and it can cause trouble to your health. So um, that, I think, this, uh, that, that is a big uh, topic. I think everybody now is focusing on how much TSE lost. But I think very little people are, are focusing on what they became. So, um, you know, I like to start to think and gather people you know, in this scientific field to study both.
0: Harold, that is a great point. You know, it's not about there, you know, is the THC there? It's what is it becoming? That is such a great point. I mean, I can't imagine if I opened up my, my soda pop and, you know, the caffeine had degraded to something else. Like who knows, you know, if it wasn't stabilized formulation, what it might become, you know, maybe it might, you know, randomly turn into MDMA or something and it'd really have a kick, you know. Just to use a silly example, a conceptual example, and that's one thing I'm not seeing in this article is exploring. Well, okay, if the DMT is going down when stored at um, you know at high temperatures or like warm temperatures, thirty-seven degrees Celsius, what what is it becoming? What are the degradation products? Are those active? Um, I think that's um, you know that's a really important point. And one of the things that struck me was that they didn't seem to see a difference between storing in plastic or glass in the refrigerator. And, and you know, Austin, um, just want to ask you real quick, you know, uh, it, when I worked with cannabinoids in the lab, storing them in glass or plastic was problematic because they stick to the sides. So we always had to like siliconize stuff for, for research. So, you know, um, that seems like a great advantage for ayahuasca tea is that they can store it in plastic or glass. Is it is that is that issue with cannabinoids sort of been solved with how sticky they can get to the surface of containers, or or if Harold or Austin, whoever wants to jump in.
2: Yeah, you know I know Harold can speak for for days on this. I'll just give uh, you know the the higher level layman's terms. Um, you know, um, adhesion or attraction to, to liners is certainly a challenge in, in cannabinoids, and there is an advantage um, for for ayahuasca or DMT um, to be able to be versatile uh, in its uh, vessel application. Um, You know, when we look at commercializing a a finished product, um, you got to put it in a package. Um, You know, you can't ship around, you know, uh, lab vials um, to the world. Consumers are not going to be able to resonate with that, Um, and so you need to have a familiar uh, packaging type. Um, Again, that's that conversation we had uh, earlier in the earlier on the podcast around form uh, and function. Um, So you need a form that's familiar. Aluminum cans, plastic bottles, glass bottles, um, that is familiar to folks. Um, And cannabis, uh, yeah, it has been a a challenge um, because there is an attraction between cannabinoids uh, and, uh, for example, can liners. Um, That's where the real challenge has been uh, in the beverage segment uh, is can liners. And the reason uh, is because there is a a polar attraction uh, between can liners uh, and uh, the the cannabinoids and the emulsions. Um, and so that polarity creates, you know, that sticking uh, adhesion mm. that, that we're talking about. And so yes, um, you know, that patented, um, you know, emulsion formula that that Harold and his team have been so focused at developing uh, has helped to address um, and help, help address that uh, adhesion to to the can liners and create, um, you know, different um, levers that that we pull to. Uh, repel uh, the cannabinoids uh, from that that can liner, and so or inherently block or create a barrier between cannabinoids uh, and that can liner. Um, and so it's it's not perfect, uh, and it's not been per- perfected yet. But it's done. Uh, Harold's done a darn good job uh, at you know creating a more stable cannabis uh, emulsion for aluminum cans uh, by understanding the, not only the polarity of aluminum cans. Polarity of the emulsion, but also the different levers that we can pull in our formula to ensure that the product's potency is consistency, and that cannabinoids are not lost in the can liner.
0: That's a that's a great point, Austin. It makes me think that maybe um, because they didn't actually measure degradation compounds, it looks like that what we we're not the 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 ayahuasca ingredients in the tea could be sticking to the side, just because they have a lower attraction
2: might just take time. And that's a good point, Jahan, only because when we talk about a commercialized product, you know, things are going to sit on the shelf, um, and or they could sit in a distributor's warehouse for an unknown amount of, of time. Uh, and that becomes uh, problematic um, to the consumer and to the retailer. You know, when I was at, at Eurofins, as an example, you know, people may have been putting uh, the intent to put you know cannabinoids in in, in a beverage um, and it was there on day one but by the time it got to the lab you know which could be day 90 day 180 you know there could be an absorption of those cannabinoids in the can liner and therefore when we you know ran it through HPLC, the mm. beverage itself nothing you know came up and so what we had to do you know is basically call out the manufacturer and say hey did you you did put something in here right what did you put 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 in here um and what we found, once it was validated, it's like, here's our process. Here's how we, you know, infuse this beverage. Um, we ultimately said, all right, well, maybe, maybe it is uh, in, in this can liner. So then we did the acid wash of the can liner in itself. And then we put that through the HPLC. We're like, oh, there they are. Uh, they were in here. They just weren't in the beverage. They were in the, in the liner. And we had to, you know, take an additional step to be able to identify where, where they were. Well, that's, that's the issue is that when a consumer drinks that beverage, that had to go through that supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, warehousing, uh, and ultimately retail shelves, that's 180 days after the manufacturing. And if they crack open that can and drink and they don't feel anything, well, they're not going to buy that product again. So you've got to create solutions that... Whether it's on day zero or day 180 or beyond, that you have a stable, active uh, in the, the beverage itself, um, and that's what you know we've been focusing on on Vortosa is to provide that consistent experience regardless of what time point you, you open up that beverage. Um, but to, to ayahuasca, if there's if there is that natural stability already uh, existent, that's certainly going to provide a more consistent experience. Um, again, whether it's day zero or you know day. Two
0: hundred twenty-two. Yeah, and we're getting a little short on HLI time, but I want to ask Nigam a hypothetical question, just real quick. Let's say you're going to have a little tea party, an ayahuasca tea party, and your guests are going to be coming over in six months. Let's just say it's. it's we're all on this podcast going to come over and try some ayahuasca tea. According to this research, Nigam, it seems to be there's two choices to store it. And I, you know, as a chemist, a Purdue you know graduate. Uh, what is the best way to store it if you're going to have a tea party? Is it just in the fridge, you know, 48 degrees Celsius or to freeze it and then thaw it once, um, do you have any thoughts, any insights you could
1: share? Uh, totally. So I'm going to, I'm going to approach your question from a little bit different angle, but we'll get to the same point. So as I was reading this, uh, I was thinking about the chemical components and what do they do. So um, when we think about ayahuasca, there's there's multiple components, right? So there's a DMT component. Now, DMT doesn't actually last very long in your body. It gets uh, chewed up enzymatically pretty quickly. So you need uh, these uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors to allow it to uh, function for a longer period of time in your body and be active. So I was I was just kind of quickly reviewing as, as we were sitting here. Um, they're looking at four molecules. So there's uh, DMT. There is uh, tetrahydroharmine. There is harmine, and then there's harmaline. So that's four from from my reading. DMT has a psychoactive effect. Uh, tetrahydroharmine or THH uh, is the uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor uh, that is going to let or that's going to have the DMT have a longer effect. So the outcome of the study and the stability was that those two molecules seem to persist pretty well, don't lose much potency under their storage conditions. They're saying basically whatever condition we're storing it in, the DMT is going to be fine. Uh, and mostly the uh, THH is going to be fine. Now, what's interesting is the uh, harmine and harmaline, uh, which are reverse uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which to me means that they're going to, drive the DMT to be degraded, right? Uh, They actually do lose potency. So to me, what this is saying is that if you drink the old DMT, if you drink the old ayahuasca tea, so if you store it longer, maybe you freeze thaw it a few times, you may actually have a more intense experience based purely on the chemical components and reading this. I've never gone through this you know i like you're saying we'll try the tea in six months we haven't tried the tea yet right so um i don't know the answer experientially but but i guess what i'm saying is that you know from my mind i i guess i'm highlighting the different effects that you could actually get so um we're saying that the components that are going to make you trip the dmt the component that's going to make you trip longer the thh those seem to be more stable. And it's the components that actually are going to degrade the DMT, being the uh harmine and the harmaline are actually the ones that are degrading either over time or with heat or with freeze thaw cycles. So um once again, I've said it twice now. Maybe the older tea has a stronger effect. So um that that's the chemist's read of the article. Yeah, you
0: know, absolutely. <laughs> uh Nigam. And you know, I'd love to get some tea chemists. I know like in China, they ferment teas, they cure teas. So, you know, and sometimes the goal is to remove a particular compound like caffeine, but fascinating stuff. Well, I got to go put a kettle on folks. And so we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with today's game. At Marco and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game, and today our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Today's game is Name That Drug, and I'm going to read a short case report. In this case, it's actually a series of case reports that have been summarized and an effect that this substance or preparation had. I'll then give you four choices, and it'll be up to our very smart and talented participants to try and figure it out. So, Androgenic alopecia, or AGA, is is the most common cause of hair loss. There are several FDA-approved medications, but they seem to have limited results. A study was done of 35 individual case reports of subjects with AGA, and they used a once-daily topical formulation, averaging about 3 to 4 milligrams per day of the main active ingredient. Um, And this was for six months. A hair count of the area was carried out before treatment and again at six months. The, revo- the, re- the results revealed that men did slightly better than women, but on average, there is a statistically significant 93.5 increase in hair after six months, according to the authors. All subjects had some regrowth, although it seemed to be more prominent in men. There were no reported adverse effects. Since this product works through, you know, novel mechanisms compared to FDA-approved drugs on the market. it could be used in conjunction with these current drugs, the authors state, and could be, uh, you know, assumed to potentially have synergistic effects. So what substance were the researchers applying or having people apply to their head once a day? Was it A? A psilocybin preparation? B, a DMT preparation, C, a, a hemp CBD type preparation, or D, a THC rich preparation. I know I didn't give you much details, but I wanted to uh, see if your imagination uh, might spur something. So what do you think, uh, Nigam? I'm going to go to you first because uh, you're a veteran of these games and my my trickery. Well, I, uh,
1: I, I feel like this is happening to me a lot these days. I, I kind of want to pass because based on some research I was a part of and then based on like reading some patents recently, I oh. I think I, oh. I, I know one of these is definitely not good. It's in the research literature and one of them there's a patent on and I think it's the answer. So those are some hints, but I'm not going to say it. Cause I, I think I know, I think I'll spoil it. Oh, really? You think, you know, the, it,
0: he does this all the time. Oh, I know the answer. I can't well, say it. But... Well,
1: I'm sorry. I mean, what do, you <laughs> want
0: me
2: to do? do you want me to spoil it? <laughs> all
0: right. Well, We'll come back to you in a second. Um, you know, Austin, do you want to take a stab? You know, you can ask a clarifying question, or you can just, you know, do you think it could be THC? Do you think it could be psilocybin? You know, you you can start with what
2: doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a clarifying question is, you know, how is it being uh, applied? Uh, is it uh, something that's in- ingested or something that's topical?
0: Oh, it's absolutely uh, topical. Um, yeah. You know, this is, it's like, a, it's a, it's a formulated product with just like, you know, three to four milligrams, uh, per day. And, and again, it is a extract, but it has minimal amounts of other components in it.
2: Harold, what are you thinking? I'm thinking QC. I'll say the, I'll, I'll say the opposite. I'll say CBD.
1: Does does Vertosa have that uh, that hair that hair ointment yet? Can I, I need can it. I get I'll that? tell you that right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm I...
2: trying to. Hold, I don't have beautiful hair like you, Nigam. So oh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to hold on to what I have.
1: <laughs> well, that's why I can't answer the question. I've been rubbing whatever this is on my head the whole time. You know.
2: So.
0: <laughs> All right. So we have one for THC, one for CBD, and Nigam we're going to come back to you.
1: Okay, I'm going to I'm going to say one of two things. Okay, I actually don't think it's THC. I think uh I think in the literature THC is like it's bad for for hair, for keeping hair, I think. Um then
2: why I,
0: do hippies have such long luxurious hair and like oh maybe <laughs> it causes dreadlocks. Is that what happens?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to pass on that one. Anyways, uh <laughs> there is uh I believe a patent right now for a DMT for hair loss. So that's the one. Yeah. That I kind of heard about oh, wow. the other one that I'm, that I'm interested in is the hemp CBD and not necessarily for the CBD. I think there's also some research around, uh, minor components of hemp extracts. Uh, so some of the other cannabinoids maybe having an effect. So, I'm I'm saying, Jayhan, you let me put half votes before, so I'm going to put half a chip <laughs> on DMD, and I'm going to put half a chip on a hemp CBD extract.
0: All right. Well, everyone's has their their chips placed down, so let's go to the big reveal. So, in a in a series of case reports involving 35 people who all experienced some amount of. Hair regrowth applying uh, this topical preparation. For those of you who thought it, you know, psilocybin was just an out of this world choice, Um, that's because it is, and it was not a psilocybin preparation. Now, for those of you who think that communicating with elves or having some sort of other experience might be important for hair regrowth and think maybe it's DMT, maybe there's some data around this patent, well, there isn't. And so it was not. About this, so this this comes down to do then two choices. So for those of you who thought it probably is THC because you know it's one of the most widely studied drugs, and in this case, it is not the subject of the study, and so that means that this study was done on a hemp CBD oil preparation where people were given two ounce jars of the oil and applied to bald spots, um, you know, every day. Um, and, and, uh, I don't know about the quality of the research, but I thought it was a fascinating, uh, study that was conducted. Well yes. Do they, uh, <laughs> good job, Austin. <laughs> Wait.
2: I try. So I got the, uh, I say I do have the little spottage going on the back, of, uh, back of the head. So it's a little mixture for me of a, uh, personal treatment, a little uh. hemp oil and castor oil, uh, is what's been working for me. And I'll tell you what. When I started started in this industry, I had a lot more balding going on, uh, especially, Digum, in our benefit corporation. And since applying castor castor oil and and hemp seed oil, I think I've done a good job of at least – Maintaining or preventing that bald spot from growing. <laughs> You're looking good, man. I mean, you
1: look you look good from where I can see you. So well, you just
2: see the front; you don't
1: see the back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next time, we'll all record with our backs to the in a mirror.
3: It's like the, it's like the barber, you know. Yeah. I want to be a little innovative with my answers because CBD is in everywhere. You know, yeah. treating everything. So, have you guys seen that um show from um, Portlandia? Put a brand yeah, on it.
0: Put CBD on it. Put it in everything, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, put a hammer whatever, whatever it is, yeah. so on I it. think
0: the study needs to be replicated and controlled but uh, well we, we could we could talk about putting drugs on our head all day long <laughs> we all have other things to do so listener that's our show thanks for clicking tapping swiping or however you are hearing this we appreciate it thank you to our trusty audio engineer and to our podcast cover artist. we appreciate it um, and check out the custom artwork for each episode